This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello and welcome to this event um, all around the Crimson Petal and the White. Um, I first met Michelle at about the time it was published, wasn't it? Um, Probably. It was, at, it was at the Hay Festival and I'm not sure what I was doing there. You were, you were, you were actually dissing me, among other things. Um, well, we Claire was inviting me to review for The Guardian and uh, I was reluctant to get involved because I didn't want to be given crappy books. So, exactly, so <laughs> crappy books, there you go. There. But, but also, there, there was another story, wasn't there, which was that it was at the start of, um, we were very, the, our website was very young, and we had this idea of doing an 18-episode an um, instalment by instalment version on the website about it, and it all got sort of tangled up. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I think that there are issues about the distance this book has come and also the distance that technology has come and the distance to a certain extent that TV costume drama has come um, over the period since, since the, the Crimson Petal and the White hit the, the um, floor. With a resounding thump, I have to say, because as anybody who's read it knows, it's about 850 pages long. And you know, one of the amazing things that um, Lucinda has done is to make this into a four... How on earth did you make it into a four-episode drama? Um, so. So here we are. Without butchering it. Without butchering it. Without butchering it. Without butchering it. That's the trick is to leave the book in. Yes. 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 Exactly. Um, and um, you know, and, and obviously, it seems to me that um, one of the things Romola has done is made a new kind of um, heroine for for period drama. I mean, somebody who's, it's sort of, she, you know, she's ironic, she's sexy, she's dirty, she's, you know, she's sort of hard, and she also has that spirit of being half in and half out of the drama, which I think is absolutely in the spirit of the book. So um, we're going to start with just um, seeing a clip from it to remind everybody who's seen it and to um, inform everybody who hasn't. How many of you haven't actually seen the, the television? A few. How many haven't read the book? Okay, so we need to have, we need to have, we need to, we'll set it very carefully in the, in the relationship. So let's, let's just look at some clips to begin, a clip to begin with. We don't know what this clip is, by the way, because it's only just been set up, so Lucinda's going to have to explain it afterwards. This is yours. And mine. I couldn't bear the thought of you living in that filthy half town any longer. The bank will send you an allowance. First payment is here. You will be independent. Short. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the, the crucial scenes in the book for Sugar and therefore for, for Romler as an adapter of that character because um, it's, it's a tipping point at which before then she's really, she's been the one in power. She's, she's been calling the shots because she has a, a, a sexual um, power over William. And at, at this point, in a way, all her dreams have come true because he's so enthralled by her that he's installed her in her own place. But it's actually at this point that she becomes more vulnerable because she's no longer in charge. She's put 
in this little flat, away from her old friends, from the things that are familiar to her. And she's completely dependent on him bothering to come and see her. Um, and that's, it's an interesting talking point, whether she's from that point on getting more empowered and more in charge and whether her life is improving or whether this is actually the beginning of, of the end for her. And she loses her source material. Her, yes. She's unable to write. The further she gets from the squalor of, of, her, of her previous life, the, the less she has to write about. <laughs> sure, because Sugar is also writing this very vengeful novel uh, in which she's exorcising all the hatred that she feels for men and also trying to tell the stories of, of all the the women who are involved in this, this rather scummy trade. And here she is put in this lovely, lovely apartment, but quite sterile and, and perfumed apartment. There's one thing that a scene that I've, I've wondered about is when she goes and she sees the wife waving, wife in the top of the building. How deliberately was that? Was that a reference to the, to the wife in the attic, to sort of, to Jane Eyre? Or was, that was for you, and was it for you, Michelle, or was this something that, that no, came in? No, no, but it, it was one of the things that impressed me about Lucinda's adaptation because she needed things that would frame each of the episodes and give them a sense of provisional completion um, so that people would be satisfied that they'd seen this thing and yet still wanting to tune in next week. And that thing of people waving to others at a window is something she used at key points in each of the, the four episodes. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mirror what's going on in the book, but it was, it was a, a screenwriting device. Yes, I think that's right. And I, I, I'd never written for TV before, and I'd never written episodes. So I was very, when I was thinking, oh, I wonder how you do that. Uh, I thought, well, the one thing everybody knows is you've got to have a cliffhanger <laughs> ending. Just everybody knows that. And, um, and I thought, gosh, to women waving to each other, is that, is that a cliffhanger? <laughs> and I'm not sure it would but have been. But really it has such an amazing cultural resonance, that doesn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, 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 it's, and I think people did think, oh my god, what's going to happen now? Because these are two people who should never wave to each other. And actually picking on what we were saying about the scene we just saw, I think, I think the, the novel and uh, perhaps to a greater degree uh, the, the adaptation uh, just because the adaptation is so f sort of physically um, uh, set out before us, it, it's incredibly territorial. It's fantastically territorial, the story. It's about who, who can go where and who owns what spaces. And, you know, when William is, is out in the rookery and visiting Sugar, he's, the excitement is all about the danger, but it, there are real dangers. And the same is true when, when Sugar crosses over. Sure. Um, because he, uh, he, he's getting that thrill of slumming it. Mm. But later on in, in the story, he gets beaten up very yeah, savagely absolutely. also because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and it's, it's, it's the same for her. And I, and I think you know, that, that, those moments at the windows are all about who's inside the house and who's outside the house. And actually, is there that big a difference? For those two women in particular, you know, who's got the better deal? Is it the woman on the inside who looks as though she's doing, you know, from the outside, it looks as though she's doing fine? But, um, but once you've been inside the house and seen what, that, what, the, what the wife is going through, what Agnes is going through, it's a, it's, a very different, uh, it's a very different story. One of the things that I really liked in the adaptation was there's a part where the, the Agnes character is laboriously writing in, in her diary, must get out. And then 
after a pause, more. Uh, <laughs> but there is that initial, you know, caged bird thing. One of the things I want to do is to, um, we, we had an awful lot of response on the Guardian website to the various episodes, most of which was incredibly positive. And, but I'm going to feed in a few of their questions and I will feed it back to them what their answers are. What is Agnes on? That was one of the questions that kept coming up and again and again. I didn't feel the need to decide. Um, I, when I write stories, I, I know as much as I need to know in order for the story to work. And I didn't need to think about what the precise drug was that she was being given by her, her pal. Um, it's, it's just obvious what's happening to her when she's on it. Did you, was that something that you thought about? Because, I mean, it's such an issue now, yeah. isn't it? No, I did think about it. I think I sort of had to think about it because, uh, because especially with Agnes, there were, Agnes was the character where there was a really s significant thing that had to be addressed in terms of adapting uh, from the novel. In the novel, we are told uh, by our omniscient narrator that what Agnes doesn't know uh, and can't know is that she has a brain tumour. Um, and that that is one of the reasons that her behaviour is as it is. I think it's only one of the reasons that her behaviour is as it is, um, as a reader. Um, but it, obviously, that we couldn't, I couldn't signal that information um, in the uh, adaptation. And so I was much more concerned about, I suppose, about being clear in my own mind uh, in terms of, of, of her psychological trajectory had to be it had to work without a brain tumour. And it seemed to me the circumstance she was living in, combined with Godfrey's elixir, <laughs> which is sadly no longer available, which uh, was a very, very uh, common um, cure-all. Godfrey's cordial. You could, you, sorry, well, you, you, you could hop around to the chemist yeah, yeah. if your child was crying all night and give your child a sound sleep with the aid of morphine, basically. Yeah, it's an o <laughs> so the answer is, she, she's, it's an opiate. It, it's, an opiate. It's, it's a forerunner of gripe water, um, <laughs> in a sense. But it, yeah, it, it, so it, it's an opiate, and it was very common that people were, um, you know, prescribed, well, it wasn't even prescribed. It was very common that people abused it and were addicted to it. Now, I'd like to ask, just go back a little bit and ask about how you, your research methods, because obviously you've all put an awful lot of work into researching <coughs> the particular relationship with the particular period. Um, let's just, I'll just start with Michelle, because I, I know that, I know somebody who belonged to the Victorian Society who said that there was a point at which they became aware that there was this man who kept asking them questions. And this person who kept saying very, very specific questions, and they wondered who it was. And suddenly, when the Crimson Pattern Red was, White was published, they realised who it was. It was Michelle who'd been, you know, asking all these experts questions. How important was research to you, and what depth did you go it's, into? It's a question that I've I've dealt with lots of times, and at the at the risk of really offending you, I'm really keen to hear let's things hear, from from Roman well, that I haven't from, yeah. heard before. And I've been reading in in interviews that um, Sugar is a, a character of a kind that you would never have chosen, well, not that you wouldn't have chosen to play, but that you felt was extremely unlike you as a person. And I wondered why you said yes, basically. Oh, well, that, that's an easy <laughs> question to answer, because um, I, th I think uh, the challenge of playing a character who's very unlike you is, is greater. And, and, and also the... the the thrill that, that you get from playing, uh, exploring um, types of behaviour that you don't 
get to express in your own life don't feel like you're able to is, is even greater. Um, I, I guess in an ideal world, I would be more like Sugar. I would love to have her kind of her canniness. And, um, you know, when you're an actress, you're often, you know, somebody who finds it very hard to sort of control or disguise your emotions. And she's somebody who's br a brilliant manipulator of her own emotions and others' emotions. Mm -hmm. And I found that so impressive. She's a consummate performer, I suppose. Mm -hmm. and, and so I sort of admired her on, on lots of different lots of different levels. But re researching um, for, for this was pointless. Everything that I went to, you had been there. <laughs> My years before me. Yeah. You know, I went and looked at research material in the London um, Westminster Reference Library of, you know, Victorian photographs, and I read books about the period, and there was just nothing that wasn't in the novel or around the novel already. It was, I could feel you walking <laughs> before me years before. It was a waste of time. <laughs> but but the, the particular historical sensibility you have isn't at all the normal costume drama, BBC costume drama sensibility. How did you find that, that, that sort of... Um, rawness really um i think it's in the in the book and and then obviously because it is such a brilliant adaptation and and, and you know the 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 energy of of the book i feel when i'm talking to lucinda inspired the energy and passion of the adaptation and i think that that fed into my commitment as a as an actor and and mark the director's passion as a director and the production design and the costume we were all sort of feverishly obsessed with it and passionate yeah. about the characters and it, it's like we'd been infected with the with the fever of the book which is I think why you know there are so many people here tonight so you, you cannot not read it and absolutely be committed to the characters being represented in the way that they are in the novel with it I mean it's quite hard isn't it a lot of it's quite tough her life were there parts of it that you find ha found hard to do or hard to relate to? Very, very hard. Also because I, I, you know, I've been lucky enough not to have had to experience any of the things, um, most of the things that that Sugar experiences. And there's, you know, there's a terrible sort of conundrum sometimes when you're acting where you feel like the, the arrogance of it. How can I possibly, you know, even attempt to know how, what this person um, went through and and, and how what little emotional resources I have to draw on in order to tell that story um, but you know I love my job and I want to work so so I put that to one side and uh, and and just um, just tried to to go on on uh, what I had um, taken from the adaptation from the novel and also we were very lucky and had a very brilliant director I was a, a, a you know I had some concerns about um, you know the direction um obviously being respectful and also because it deals with so much sex about that being dealt with you know without coyness and with you know almost a sort of uh, you know aggressive intimacy which i think is so important in the way it's dealt with in the novel i wanted that on screen and but i needn't have worried because mark was ex absolutely on the same page mm -hmm. so lucinda in terms of the adaptation talk a bit about this this in this, these particular issues that as they struck you you've got I mean this is I mean I, I can just imagine you reading this huge 108 850 page book and thinking how on earth am I going to get this into four episodes well actually I'd read it about 10 years earlier and thought how on earth am I going to get it into two hours for a film because I'd been approached about it as a film earlier so getting it into four hours seemed a bit of a yeah that seemed Luxury. a lot easier actually yes okay, I was, okay. a lot of room to breathe but um yes I think it, yes, that, of course. 
was a, a conundrum. But on the other hand, there is, it's a great thing to have the luxury of too much story because, you know, that, that is, yeah, that's, that's a real luxury. And to have such richness already, uh, you know, established for you, it, because the characters are so rich and so developed and because the terrain is so brilliantly fertile because of all the work that Michelle had done, um, it meant that I, there were shortcuts that I could take without it ever, I think, feeling too threadbare. Um, there was a sort of, you know, I, I was dealing from a working out of very rich soil and I could create a kind of slightly bonier architecture for, um, that's a very mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean, uh, um, bonier branches on the tree from the rich soil, I don't know. Um, it, it, yeah, because we could, we could play slightly fast and loose partly because what had been established was uh, so rich and there was so much to go at. Um, I had lots of the same concerns as Romola um, in terms of worrying about the, the, the representation of this woman, about this, the sexual side of it, uh, about it not being prurient, but not being coy, but not being, you know, porn, which is a book was a, always a sort of huge risk. And, um, and in the end, I think we were really lucky that, you know, we, this is a, I mean, this is a novel that you started many decades ago. Yes, yes. I first read it a decade ago. And, and yet once we got started on this particular um, journey with it, it went very, very, very fast. Um, and it was very fast in terms of adaptation and very fast in terms of shooting and people being attached. And there was a tremendous um, energy to it once it got going. Uh, as you say, it, it, developed a, it really did develop a life of its own. We had so many designers who were just fighting to work on it. Um, and I think that energy comes from the book. I, you know, the, the characters were all just pushing each other out of the way to, to have their say. And that's, that's a gift for I'm really a, interested that you say, you talk about how great it was to have that richness of story. Because most mm. film directors say you, what you need is a short story, really. They, they make the best films, don't they? Well, and, you know, that may be true for film, actually. But I think, I mean, I never watched, worked in TV before, so as I say, so it, it was interesting for me to have a, a bigger canvas and, uh, and actually I think this, this novel was perfect for TV because so much of it is, involves two people in a room talking and in fact ne negotiating power. <laughs> Six episodes would have been nice. Yeah, there's we no question. Have, Enough. We could have yeah. had more of Henry and Emmeline, who weren't, who weren't as no. well served as, no, they as the others. And that was, and in fact, there are, you can see the deleted scenes. They're all glorious. <laughs> well, do, do, can we uh, see the deleted scenes? I think they you can. The They're CD on the BBC set? website, actually. Okay. Apparently. You can yeah. see them on iPlayer, the deleted scenes. You can't see right. the actual episodes anymore, but you can see the deleted scenes, which is rather curious. It's like, <laughs> yes, I don't know what it's like, but it's rather odd. It's like kind of being able to look at your appendix after surgery or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you can, you can see all that. So, yes, yeah, so I think there's no question that Henry and Mrs. Fox suffered. Um, and when people have said, oh, but will there be a sequel? I said, well, no, there won't be a sequel I, because it's really, it's none of your business what happens to Sugar and Sophie. You make it up in your own heads. Um, uh, but I do think there's, a, there's almost a whole series of just people we didn't have time for. Of, uh, of, from of the, the subsidiary characters. Yeah. And that, that. Well, Clara, I was, I mean, I was felt, I'd given Clara slightly short shift and she's, She's a tremendous character. Agnes she is. May, she gets to star in a, in a story of her own in, in the I Apple. I love that story. That's my favourite um, story. Called in the Clara Apple. and the Rat Man. After she gets kicked out of the Rackham House, she becomes a prostitute because you know there's not many options for for domestic servants who've been given the boot. 
with terrible and, references. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she, she ends up servicing this, this guy from Afghanistan, and a soldier, you know, come back from Afghanistan. And you realize that this is a war that's been going on forever, you know, it's still going on. Uh, and you, you have this Victorian story about sex power balance between this ex-servant and, and a soldier from Afghanistan. It's, it's a story I'm very pleased with. It's a very moving story. Did you, Romana, did you feel that there were parts of sugar that you would have liked more of, or a different balance, or did you, were you sorry about bits that you lost? Um, I think when I watch it back now, I, uh, I wish that I, I think that her, um, the extent to which her vulnerability is, is seen by the other characters and also by the audience was always very much up for debate mm -hmm. um, with the director and also with the producers. It's always very important to, you know, central characters, you know, have to make her very sympathetic, very vulnerable. Right. I was very keen to never make her vulnerable. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, She comes across as very vulnerable in a lot of it. I would have been tempted to try and push her uh, towards being less vulnerable yeah. uh, for, at the start. Um, but, you know, we live in the world we live in and that was, that was always a great source of... Of, um, uh, of of disagreement, well, disagreement is too strong a word, but debate and um, and and also, you know, I have to say, although the um, although the her skin condition is in the adaptation, it was a real fight to get it in mm. by Lucinda, mm -hmm. um, by Mark, the director, a little bit by me as so well. Mark, so Mark, so who is he was fighting with the producers to get it in because they thought it wouldn't yeah, play. Yeah, because people think it. Went, I mean, and also to be fair to them, it is a costume drama. There is an audience for costume dramas. You know, as you were saying, you know that genre is changing in television. Sure. Hopefully, this is part of that change. How do you pull that traditional audience with you? You don't want to throw a bucket of cold water over them on the very first go. But then, on the other hand, I just, I just think if you if you'd left that out, yeah. you would have been yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's such a, her physicality is such a huge part of who she is. It would have just, I think, really been something I felt very strongly about. Mm. I mean, there's an audience, there's a readership for um, historical novels as well, and quite a lot of people who like that genre gave the Crimson Petal a go and it took them somewhere where they weren't expecting to go mm. and that's stretching them as well but um, I didn't have to clear that with a producer obviously. Mm. Yes, I don't, I don't know if I even think of it as, as, as costume drama really or as period drama. I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, it's interesting that it, it, it's clearly not upstairs, downstairs or, or Downton Abbey. Um, uh, and the, you know there are drama series all the time that are. I suppose we don't think of Singing Detective as a period drama or a costume drama. It was, of course, it was all those things, but we don't refer to it that way, and we think of it as an authored piece of a, a drama series. Um, and I, I would think of this in, in, a, in a sort of similar way, really. Mm. I mean, I, it's just the Victorian period has been so worked in that particular genre, and it is a genre, but I don't think this is necessarily part of it. Mm. It's, it's interesting you mentioned the Singing Detective because if if we knew now that his skin condition in that drama had been removed because of concerns that it mm. might freak mm. people out, we would think, oh, what a terrible, terrible shame. Uh, what was the point of doing that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm very glad it was, you won that. that but I, mean, I have to say, also just to defend uh, the production company and also the BBC, this is not television that would be on in America. So although, you know, obviously we had our little skirmishes about these issues about not you know, trying to dumb it, dumb it down and, and not trying to make it too palatable or safe. I don't think there are many other countries where this piece of work would have been made in the way it was made, especially in terms of talking about her contraception and abortion. And th mm -hmm. that's just, 
there's just no way it would have been made in America. So obviously they also did a fantastic job in, in keeping those things in right. and being true to them. Is it well. going to be shown in the USA? I bet it will be if it isn't. Well, it hasn't been so far. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I think it is, a, it is a tricky issue. A t yeah. Abortion, obviously, is, is always going to be a difficult one, mm -hmm. I think, for an American, mm -hmm. uh, any American distributor. Even BBC America, I don't, I don't know. Why, can I just ask you about the skin condition? Why did you make her have that skin condition? Why did um, It's psoriasis. It's, it's like what, it's, what it, Dennis it, well, Potter had. It's, it's a it? skin condition called ichthyosis, which my first wife actually had. And um, I, I found it tremendously alluring because it gave her tiger stripes. But I recognized that for other people there might be a yuck factor. And um, knowing that, that if you have a personal relationship with someone, their skin condition can actually become almost a plus. It was like if, if William could be enthralled by sugar despite what is going on with her skin, then that's an indication that on some level, he must care more for her than he would for an average piece of flesh that he's renting for an hour. And I mean, as the story goes on, we do tread very carefully the, de the degree to which he really does care about mm. her as a, as a love object and the degree to which she is a substance that he's using. And I, I think that the adaptation preserves that that uncertainty. It was very useful as a as a you know as a meter of her emotional state sure, as well because sure. the, the there are points in the novel like for example in episode uh, two when she moves into the house when uh, because she's out of the slums you would imagine that her skin condition would improve a great deal um, being away from the dirt and 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 also you know not having so many sexual partners and but uh, in fact it gets worse mm -hmm. and, and that's an, that's an interesting. Um, uh, and very revealing thing about her, her sure. character that, that, that it, it actually doesn't improve. Mm. Yes, it's a great psychological barometer. Desire and disgust, always. Mm -hmm. Happy bedfellows, actually. But, um, <laughs> Desire and disgust. Yes, yes. they're yes. very commonly found together, um, I understand. Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think also I, I love the fact that but at the beginning of the novel, Sugar treats her skin with bear's grease, and that seems to work okay. And it's only when she starts using Rackham's products <laughs> that it, things start to take a turn for the worse. Poison. Yeah. Yes. What do we think of William? Where to begin? Yeah. Go on, Romola. What do you think of William, having had to be the person who rubbed up against him, as it were? <laughs> oh. In so many ways. Uh, um, yeah, I think... Um, I think what was, I mean, I can only obviously talk about the acting. I don't want to talk about him as a, as a character because obviously I'm in a very bad position to do that sitting next to the author. But um, uh, Chris, uh, who played William and I, um, locked heads quite a lot. And I thought that that was very revealing about the relationship that Sugar and William have. Because essentially when, it, when we were playing the scenes, they, they were power battles. Uh -huh. They were battles for, for power always. And, um, and, and the question of whether or not they love each other kept coming up in rehearsals. You know, is there an element of love coming into their relationship? But 
any relationship with that much fight for power, with that much to lose, with that much insecurity in it, cannot really. There wasn't. There didn't seem to be room for me for for love in that in that relationship. But you know, often when you're acting, if you're doing you know a play, the the relationship with the characters feed into the relationships that you you have. And although you know, I absolutely love his performance. He's fantastic in it, and we I have great respect for him for an actor. We did you know disagree quite a lot, and that was because I think that there were these these power battles in, in, in the scenes, and that's what almost all of our dialogue together was. Just say a little bit more about that. I'm really interested in that. So, so you mean you, you actually fell out? You, you would be antagonistic in, well, your, in the performance? I mean, not falling doing... out, but, you know, for example, you would, we would be playing a scene, and we'd play it, and then he'd say, I don't think this is working because if you're looking at me like you're that angry, I would see that, and then obviously I would not find you attractive. So that was a useful thing for me because I would have to work out how much she's able to hide from him and not, and, and um, those, those were, I did find those things quite difficult to, to, to act, you know, because you obviously have to allow the audience to see what's going on internally with her, but then at the same time, he mustn't see too mm -hmm. much of that. And then quite often I would say, you know, I don't want... I personally, me, Romana didn't want him to have too much power in a scene because I always wanted her to have more power. And, right. and then it was just us projecting our own interests as people and love of the characters into the, into the relationship. But it also mirrored their, their mm. dynamic. It's mm. problematic too because the, the better an, an actress sugar is allowed to be mm. without showing vulnerability, the more porny it becomes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, that's, that's a delicate balance. Uh, I, I would agree with Romana that... that in Sugar's sex life, if you like, there really is no room for, for love in, in, a, in any real meaningful sense. But there's room for love in her relationship with Sophie, the little girl. And one thing that I found fascinating about Lucinda's adaptation is apparently when she first read the book, it, it was a very different book for her mm. from when she next read it, which is when her, she had a child and the child was of a certain age. And you suddenly felt that it was a book about something else mm. and that you were going to yes. focus on that well I think I just the first time I read it I one of my 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 concerns were in a sense very much about the about the sex uh, um, and about the given that I was talking to American producers about a film I, it, I was very worried about what it could turn into and whether I uh, really wanted to be involved with it and in a sense and um pretty woman in criminals well it, yeah <laughs> or worse i mean I, worse, you know yes. Uh, um, so yes so i had sort of quite a lot pretty of misgivings yeah. <laughs> fatal attraction in criminals pretty woman without <laughs> bloomers oh, yeah um but yeah. um yes well yeah uh, it all seemed a bit i thought the risk of it becoming yeah very kind of unpleasantly porny were, were quite high uh, and then when I, and, and I, I couldn't, yes, I, I suppose the question of what it was about, I could see it's a novel of astonishing virtuosity. Uh, and I think to a degree, the, the technique of it the first time I read it was, was dazzling. And I was very, I was also very worried about how do you do the framing device? How would you, whose narration is it? Because there's, a, there's an omniscient narrator at the beginning who then, evaporates and kind of just abandons you in the morass and, and all the diaries and all the writing and so a lot of those just technical concerns about it um, and this problem of the, of the sex uh, and the Americans the sex and the Americans the Americans and the sex very bad uh, and so I and then when I came when I was sent the book again um, 
the, the, the big change, in, and I suppose the first time around, also, my daughter was two, so the idea of working in the States, again, which I had done once before, with a two-year-old, it's, it's a nightmare because they phone you, they do all the conference calls at 10 o'clock at night, which obviously, if you've got a two-year-old, is when you're sort of hoping to be in bed, because you'll be getting up at five o'clock in the morning to read each peach pear plum or something. And I couldn't quite see how these worlds were going to coexist happily. Um, and so when I read it again, my daughter was much older, and suddenly, when I read that, the, the section with Sophie, and in fact, even before then, with the, the stuff with Mrs. Castaway and Sugar, parenting had become a really big thing for me. And I suppose I'd, I'd understood very, uh, I'd had this great revelation in my life that when you parent your child, you are, in a sense, reparenting yourself one way or another. Um, and no and matter... men who are looking for sex are, in some cases, looking, looking for, for a parent. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so those things had become very sort of clear and present in my life. And I, I, so I read the book and I just... It, it, it was as if it just all suddenly came into focus and I could see it, I sh that light shone through the novel in a very particular kind of way and, I, and, and lit it up and I could see the skeleton of the adaptation. And I, it's quite unusual for me that I looked at it and I thought, I know exactly how I do this. I know exactly what it is and I, and I must, and it is mine. <laughs> Did, so you were involved right the way from the start of this project. It was yeah. your baby. You well, I was I, the executive producer on this project was somebody I'd worked with on a film in the past quite a long time ago who called me in and uh, to talk about it and I at that point thought it was a film and I went in and said it was so funny because I've been you know I've been asked to do this as a film before and he said I know it's telly but we thought if we told you that you wouldn't come in uh, and so we talked about how it might work and I and I uh, I'm not embarrassed to repeat that I basically said okay you understand I have to do it it's nice we're having this meeting and we're all being very chummy, but I have to do it. And they said, well, we're seeing a couple of other people. And I said, I don't think so. That's not, <laughs> that's not working for me at all. And, uh, and they were seeing them later that day. And we had to do this awful, I had to do this awful thing where I said, you know, you can see them. <laughs> <laughs> but they can't have it. And, uh, how, how could you have had any power in that situation? Oh, well, if you want something badly enough. No, it was very clear. I mean, I, also, I know this producer of old, and I just, I, I, he frightens quite easily. And I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> so I was just was very strict about it. And um, it was, yes, I'm not usually, but it was just, it was very important. It was very necessary. And I was sort of, I felt as though I'd already started. It was, uh -huh. it's on you, I just, but I thought, I've already started, mate. I, you know, I've re also, once you've read something, it's like 850 pages long, and you can see how you might get it down to four hours. You're quite, <laughs> you really have already started. And um, that's kind of half the job. Um, so, yeah, so I... Power battles again. Yes, yeah, yeah, all, really absolutely. interesting. This is really interesting. Powerful mm. women, eh? Yeah. Um, let's well, talk, with, I feel quite sorry for David Thompson now that uh, we're oh, all just David talking Thompson? about this. Oh, it was David Thompson. He was yeah. my English teacher once upon a time. <laughs> we have to talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that, well, that's really interesting. So now... Uh, Did you that, frighten him? I probably, Sorry. probably, yes, yes. I, see. I was there with Daniel De Luz as well as another of his students, weirdly. You probably didn't know that either, did you? But um, anyway, this is completely out of context. Motherhood, really important in this adaptation. Um, motherhood, bad motherhood, good motherhood. She, Sugar is famously badly mothered. Well, she, does she have a mother? We don't I really don't know. know. A mother prostitutes her at 13, is that fair? But is she her mother? <laughs> Isn't there a, a slight question about... Uh, is she... She, yes, oh, she, she's she, she, yeah, she is. She yeah, is the yeah. mother. There was a, there was she is the mother. There was well, a what, what I did in the original version of the Crimson Petal, 
which I planned out when I was 19 or something. Mrs. Castaway was going to be William's mother. So William loses his mother when he's small, and she goes off, and she becomes Mrs. Castaway. So in a sense, well, not in a sense, in, a, in reality, Sugar and William are having an incestuous relationship. And um, this is all terribly Victorian, because of course in Victorian novels, everybody ends up related to everybody else. They didn't realize, oh, so you've been my brother all along. Um, but I thought this would be too neat. Wouldn't and play in America, really, would it? It's not that it wouldn't play in America. I, I wanted to write a Victorian novel that felt incredibly real, and where your, um, your grip on these characters as real human beings never wavered. And I thought that something like that would tip the balance towards, oh, the author is playing around here and being terribly clever, and I didn't see that coming, blah, blah, blah. But it, it, it would put a barrier between, you know, caring about Sugar or William or whatever. So I, I, I took that out. So how much, how much do you think you, you've brought of your... You've talked about a bit about having had a child be between reading it and actually yes. doing it. How much do you think you brought your... Um, urgencies about motherhood to, to your adaptation? Oh, I think hugely. But, but I, I mean, I was, you know, I Something I had to be done. Book, yeah. A focus had to be found. Yeah, and I, it suddenly, and I suppose when I looked at it through that lens, um, William in particular made, William and Henry suddenly made perfect sense. Um, William's incredible, uh, his extraordinary needs. And I, when you, when you, when you read the novel, William lives this, you know, in, in a sense, relatively comfortable life, except that you realise that there's nobody who ever touches him. This is a man who partly pays for, for sex, because if he doesn't, he's simply, literally never touched. He's, he never sees his daughter. His, his wife will have nothing to do with him um, and, and is, af is physically afraid of him, is sexually afraid of him. Um, and there is, there is nobody to touch him. He certainly, his father is never going to embrace him. His brother is never going to embrace him. Um, and I... So the idea that he goes to prostitutes became very straightforward in a sense, never mind the, the prevalence of it in the period. And this is why, in a sense, talking about research is sort of interesting in a way, but, but it's also not interesting. Because like William, I don't feel that William goes to prostitutes because there, were, there was a prostitute for every eight men in Victorian London, which all those statistics that we all know. I think he goes because otherwise no one would ever touch him. And, you know, so he has his reasons for going. And it seemed to me that that, 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 that that need to be held was very much to do with his mother having uh, absconded. Um, and one of the things that people used to ask me when I first started working on it was, what is the unspeakable sexual act that William once performed? That, that, that lots of, in the novel, he visits lots of prostitutes. Um, uh, he, he wants them to do this particular thing, to, and they say, he whispers, we don't do that. Yeah, and, we don't know, you know what it is. He wi they go, we'll do anything, and they, he whispers in their ear, they go, we won't do that. <laughs> and so there is this, this issue of what is it that they won't do, and then they say, well, you should try sugar, because she'll do anything. Uh, and he goes to sugar, and you sort of imagine you're going to find out. And, and for me, it, seems, it, it, it seemed that in the end, he got, uh, he got what he wanted, which was that he wets himself, and she cleans him up. And it's not, that is never presented in, in terms of him saying, what I would really like now is to wet myself in nuclear. It's, it's something that happens during their time together. It's something that happens notionally by accident. It is what a child would call an accident. I've had an accident. And it, but it's that seemed to me, that moment where Sugar says, never mind, take off your trousers. 
Let me just. I've never you know, actually thought of that, it. but I agree. I just think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I think you were just you left it there for me to find. Yeah. Is what I was yes. assumed. Yes. Yes. I, but I felt that all the time when I was adapting. I thought, oh yes, he's mm. left that there for me. He didn't know that I'd be long later. Right. But here I am. So and now, when yeah. you say you did, you'd never thought of it, do you mean you didn't think that it was about? Well, first waiting? of all, I, I never decided what it was that he wanted. Ever? Ever? No, no, no. Okay. Um, but that's a very. I think that's very sound, the idea that, that he was looking for that sort of nurturing. Somebody who would clear, clean him up. Somebody yeah. who would clean him up. Yeah. 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 Do you think this might have been an issue for the actor? Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> in terms of loss of control? <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, it, it is very interesting because actually I, I think part of the, of the sort of dynamic of how much you reveal or don't reveal when playing a character like Sugar is that she is a brilliant actress. So actually, you know, her, uh, Chris is right to an extent in some of those scenes where he's like, you know, if she, what he wants is a kind of ideal maternal figure, you know, this kind of sort of virginal mother, you know, character, then she would be all love and you would see none of the darkness behind the eyes. But then, of course, the problem is, of course, when you're doing a TV adaptation, you need to follow a sugar story as well as his. Mm -hmm. I had to try and do both. And, 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 and that was, that was you know, difficult to sometimes try and yeah, carry both also, of those Surely what he, what he needs is, is, is that person, but knowing that it's also not that person, that it's yeah. a person you pay so you can control it. Yeah. It's yeah. the mother you can control, which is what yeah. he's not had previously. Yeah. It's the mother you pay for. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I mean, I think you're right that she can't be... To, she, she's not there to be that mother. She's there to be that mother and be constantly signalling that she's not that mother at the same time. And also, perhaps, you know. once, um, once she's done that for him, he can't let her go, because he could I never let, right. let that person out no. of his power who's, who's done yeah. that for him and therefore seen his... And purpose. hasn't had to be asked. Yes. You know. yeah. she, she has an instinctive understanding of, what, of, of yeah. his needs. Brilliant. Yeah. Sort of brilliant. Oh, we are clever, aren't we? Now we're going to have to open it up to the audience, because you've also, I'm sure, got lots of clever questions. So please do stick hands up quickly. Uh, I think we have a roving mic. There's a roving mic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's his insecurity at the beginning, and, and Sugar takes him over and transforms him at the, in the first few pages, really. And, uh, and then she manages his business. I'm only halfway through. I've just got to where um, she's going to move into, presumably, to look after the child. So that's as far as I've got. But to me, William was insecure. He couldn't go into the business. His brother couldn't go into the business. And it was Sugar that actually transformed his life and gave him the confidence that all the wetting and whatever happened and sexually is, is part of his insecurity. She just gave him confidence. That's what I see. But I'm only halfway through. And I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the drama. You have a treat in store. There's a lady in the third row and then one over there. Yes. Hi, I just had a question about the narrator, because it was something that I really liked when I first read the book, um, just this narrator that just leads you into this world and does sort of just slowly trip out again, leaving you in the room, sort of turn around and go, oh, where'd you go? Um, which in the television series, you had sort of sugar as the narrator's voice. So I'd just like to understand sort of where that came from, or your, um, you know, you, Michelle, like that, or just, yeah. Um, well, this, this narrator at the very beginning of the book is like the voice of literature, saying, come on in, I'll show you a good time, which is what all books offer you. And whether the books deliver or not is, is another matter, but that's like the, the prostitute-client um, um, dynamic. And I felt if I had that sort of narrator all the way through, it would get very, very heavy going. And I felt I needed to, to let 
the reader experience things through Sugar's perspective, through William's perspective. So I, I had various tactics of the degree to which the narrator is there. Now obviously in the adaptation they couldn't do it that way and I think it was very clever to, to have Sugar as our narrator um, because it, it, it gives it a similar framing device to the, to the book but it simplifies it, um, makes it work televisually and you have her voice of course then. Yes, I think we it was we, we really um, needed it partly because that there's that that, that kind of bravura writing at the beginning of of the novel, um, which uh, people were kind of astonished that when we tried to when we when the I think when I delivered the first draft of the UC, they said, "Got crocky, going to put that whole sequence in at the beginning." And I said, "Well, yes, absolutely. You've got to. She's got to be in control of their, you know, entry entering the story of." Of the book, and and in a sense, we are we have our cake and eat it, and that she, at the end of the book, she starts a book, which is presumably, the book we're reading. Or I, yeah, it, it, yeah. we have the snake eat, it, eat its tail. Um, I mean, it it, it worked in well in the sense that, sugar, has control then at the beginning of yeah. what we are going to see, at the, nearly the end, she loses her novel, yeah. uh, its pages fluttering in the wind, so that symbolises her total loss of, that kind of control. But then at the very end, which is something that's not in the book, she starts a new book, a fresh book, symbolizing, of course, fresh start in life. And it, it keeps that framing device, and it's, it's neat. I think I also have to just say, because Mark, the director, isn't, isn't here, that, that the narrative voice was also replaced by the camera in the story, uh, yeah. just as the narrative yeah, voice yeah. is the I distance think. between Sugar and the reader on the page. The camera is the thing between you know, Sugar and, and, and the watcher at home. And they did a lot in the camera work of uh, distancing from you from the characters with having foreground objects in focus and background action uh, not in focus. So um, it's been quite revolutionary in that way for, for television yeah. in, in terms yeah. of the way that they've allowed not the actors' faces to be this necessarily always the focus of, of the shot and to allow people coming in and out of focus and in and out of frame. Yeah, and the same thing actually with the sound, which I think has also been <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, extraordinary that, 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 that sometimes you couldn't quite hear what the actors were saying because the rustling of the trees was so intense. Um, or because the hissing the, of the gaslights. Or the hissing of the gaslights. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of detail. And I think the sound department had just never had such free reign and were mm. constantly expecting to be told off and amazed to discover that you that they could just kind of crank it up. And it that, sort of makes sense. And that sound would carry the story. It's know? sort of queasy, isn't it? It mm. makes you feel you've lo you yeah. lose your perspective all the time. It's yeah. like everything's going slightly yeah. wobbly yeah. around you. Um, there was somebody up, up there, yes, right at the back. Hi. To what degree do you think this work uh, represents, or is the shadow dark side of Dickens London? Is there a dark side of Dickens London? It's quite well, dark itself, it's isn't it? It, it, it is. Thing. Dickens dark is incredibly yeah. dark. I mean, when The Guardian reviewed The Crimson Petal and the White, um, the reviewer very kindly said that this is the book Dickens would have written had he been free to, to do so, which is enormously flattering. But I, I, to be honest, I think Dickens wrote exactly the books that he pleased and that he didn't wish to be more sexually explicit than he was uh, because he was a Victorian man. And um, I think I, I wrote a book for 20th, 21st century people and it, it has a much greater degree of sexual explicitness and it's post-Freud, it's post-feminism, it's, it's got all those things in it which were not available to Dickens. It's not that he suppressed them, they just weren't there to be used. Um, so yes, it is in a way the dark side of Dickens, but 
with the materials that Dickens was working with and how he was manipulating them, he got plenty dark. And there's, there's lots there to, um, to see if you wish to see it. Um, it just, it's more implied, less explicit. Mm. Got any more? Anyone from this side? Yes, behind me. Do we have any, any person who's got testicles or something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, Ladies? No. Excuse me, I've got balls. <laughs> I was going to say that um, I've never really responded to a character in the way that I did with Sugar in the novel, and in that I felt deeply attached to her, and it took me a long time to let her go, you know, thinking about her. So I wondered, you've had this novel in your life, Michelle, for decades, yeah? How did it feel handing her over, handing to be adapted, and how much did you have any input in it during the production and just how did that feel? I, I had no input whatsoever and that was the way I wanted it because I felt that people who are making a drama, whether it's for TV or for film, they, they know their stuff and they're either going to make a crappy movie, in which case I can say it had nothing to do with me, <laughs> or they're going to make something superb and I can thank them and say you did a wonderful job, um, which is the much nicer position to be, to be in. And it means I, I didn't have the, the, the headaches and the, and the trauma of, of wondering whether this thing would get made and whether the funding would come through and so on, which is everyone involved in a, in a project like this has to suffer those slings and arrows. And it was just sheer pleasure for me to, to see the results. There's, there's one thing I, I want to um, bring up for, for this. This may be putting you in a terrible position, but when I was looking for, at responses that the, the show got, there's a horrible website called UK Nude Scenes. Have you heard of it? <laughs> UK Nude Scenes. <laughs> a blog about recent and possible nude scenes from British actresses, including Irish actresses and actresses um, overseas, but working mainly in the UK. That's, it. That's already incredibly <laughs> anal and, and uh, yeah. uh, train spottery. But anyway, these are people that, that get the latest DVDs and so on and go through them like with a pause button to see if there's a, a glimpse of nipple or, or whether you see half of someone's ass cheek and so on. And they, they share this information amongst themselves. How does it make you feel to know that there's people out there <laughs> who... who who have been through the Crimson Petal, you know, looking well, to see... What you don't know is I set that website up. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the same way that I suppose when you write a novel like this, you hope that people don't find it titillating, but how much can you police that, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, if I went to bed at night worrying about, you know, whether anyone was pleasuring themselves, <laughs> then I would, you know, be a very unhappy person. But, you know, you just, you just can't. I, I hope that there are as many or at least some people who watch it and find it enlivening and inspiring and want to go and write themselves or want mm -hmm. to go and act or, you know, I mm -hmm. hope that there are enough of those people to make it worthwhile. <laughs> we got any more? Uh, yes, one, one there, and then one there, and then I think we'll be through. Can you keep them quite, quite brief? Because we're pretty much out of time. So one there. To what extent would you say The Crimson Petal and the White is a work of feminism? Woo, that's a big one to finish off with. <laughs> um, it's, it's a very nuanced view of, of women and men, I think. And um, 
from what I've read of interviews that Romler has done, that's something that attracted you to it. That it's it's not stridently one thing or the other. It's 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 not woman as sexy principle that just walks on and and is there to be lusted after. Nor is it um, let's all feel sorry for um, the, the the blameless and um, pure woman that's getting a hard deal. It's 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 a mixture. I don't know how you how do you write a feminist novel? I mean if you have a strong if you have a central female character that you are interested in and how can you you, you can't judge their choices. I mean, that would defeat the object. You know, I think it's it, I think it is I, a work of feminism in that it's in, about a woman. <laughs> I think she's a feminist heroine. Yeah, she's, she's, she's a she's feminist heroine. I think. Yeah, I, she I, does. I, I think you know, any female sense. character that's human is yeah. by is by definition exactly. feminist. Yeah. Because I mean, for me, that the, the classic male-created view of, of femininity is Bunuel's that obscure object of desire. I don't know. If how many people have seen that film? But in, in that film, the, the woman is just this unknowable sexualized creature that walks in and causes chaos. But we, the male viewer, can never understand women because they're just this impossibly exotic creature. And I think a lot of men need women to be like that. Um, whereas once you recognize that, that women are human beings, then there's a lot of common ground you know, with all humans. But um, there's a, there's a, there was a gentleman there who, was, who now has the onerous... Oh, we've got, so we've got the one <laughs> last question. It's from a gentleman. Well yeah. done. <laughs> it's uh, just a question for Romola. You've done a lot of historical acting. Do you prefer one period rather than another? Uh, no, I, I'm, I prefer different kinds of... Um, I prefer contemporary pieces that are historical than, than adaptations of historical novels now, I think, um, mainly because I've done so many adaptations of, of historical novels. But, but also, I, I think, you know, I, I got to a point in my career, even though I'm somebody who loves Dickens and Eliot and Austen and, you know, I love books, and I, I started to worry that, that they were a sort of pornography for a lot of women. And that what I thought that they were were sort of, you know, works of art, or actually were, you know, Sunday night comforting. Um, people just wanted to watch them for the weddings at the end, and <laughs> I, I started to worry that that's what they that's what they were. And and um, so I'm I suppose I'm more interested now in, in working uh, in in any era, but as long as it is um, a, a true story and and not just um, you know a, a device. Well, I think we're going to have to leave there. I just want to leave you with a quote, which is from the Guardian website, um, which was, I haven't seen TV uh, ratcheted up a notch like this since Edge of Darkness, um, apart from the mighty Bush, but maybe that's a different <laughs> genre. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's it. There, there, there will be... There will be a signing afterwards, and there's some debate as to who should sign the book exactly, but we think well, that they we, both... We did they, they, yeah. some time back, and Romola was worried about signing a book she hadn't written. But yeah, you're actually on the cover the of the book. It pretty much the worst thing I've ever had to do was sign a book that well, you spent on, 25 on... years writing, and I spent six months cheating. Yeah, but Mich yeah. Michelle's very happy to, for you to sign it as well, so maybe... I, I think I probably won't go through that again, actually, if uh -huh. that's, if so that's you, okay. You just, get, you just get Michelle bad luck, but he'll be there. <laughs>
More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.